Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll take you inside one of the final rehearsals for the world premiere of the Joffrey Ballet's adaptation of Of Mice and Men, which is opening this week. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new production of the ultra-popular history pop music mashup Six. Later, we'll get ready for Independent Bookstore Day with a visit to a charming West Suburban shop that's endured quite a bit since it first opened its doors back in 2018. And we'll celebrate the birthday of a performance legend who's turning 80 today. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Eighty-five years after its publication, John Steinbeck's novella Of Mice and Men is as relevant today as it was the day it came out. Americans were still reeling from the Great Depression in 1937. Today, people are still coping with the numerous effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The story of two friends holding on to a dream as they attempt to navigate increasingly unforgiving circumstances is timeless, regardless of current events, which is one of the reasons Of Mice and Men is considered a literary classic. Though I think it's fair to say the book's themes of loneliness and despair feel especially familiar today, which is why Steinbeck's work is such an intriguing piece of source material for the world premiere ballet that's set to be presented by the Joffrey Ballet this week. Of Mice and Men has been adapted for stage, film, and opera over the decades, and now the classic story will be told through dance. Kathy Marsden and I started talking about Mice and Men four years ago. This is Joffrey Ballet Artistic Director Ashley Weeder talking about his first interactions with acclaimed choreographer Kathy Marsden. I met Kathy in London, and we were sitting having breakfast, and I said to her, you know, Kathy, I really want to invite you to the Joffrey to do a new work. And I said, so if I said to you, what is something you've always wanted to do? What is that answer? And she said, I want to do my cement. Four years and a pandemic later, that idea is becoming a reality. A few days ago, I visited Joffrey's headquarters just off State Street to watch a rehearsal of the world premiere. The ballet's score comes from 15-time Academy Award nominee Thomas Newman. I sat down with Marston to learn more about her interest in Of Mice and Men and her approach to choreographing this new work. Well, I studied the book in school, like I guess many Americans. We also study it in the UK, and it really resonated. I mean, I must have been about 16, and it stayed with me 
throughout the years. And I often draw inspiration from literature and biography for my ballets. I love telling stories on stage. And Of Mice and Men had just always been one of those stories that I wanted to tackle, to, to find a way to, to tell Lenny and George in movement and, and the journey that they have. Um, but it really demands a specific type of dancer and company. You know, the cast is, you have to get it right. Lenny's this big guy, George is this little short sort of sharp guy. And there's so many other characters, Candy, Crooks, Curly, Curly's wife. You need to get the right um, artists who really will investigate the nuance of each of those characters. And when I suggested the work to Ashley, we were talking about pieces that we might make together. And it was the first one I mentioned. I said, you know, I've always wanted to, to do of Mice and Men. Immediately he leapt at that idea. And I think he knew. I didn't know Joffrey Ballet at that point. But I think he knew that it was the, the right match for his team. What is it about the book that speaks to you? It's so, it's heartbreaking. It moves me. And yet it's heartwarming at the same time. It's this contrast of the loneliness of all of the characters, the alienation, the bleakness of that time, and yet within that very flat, bleak, horizontal landscape, something happens, and it's this warm relationship between Lenny and George. They care about each other, they love one another, they look out for one another, and it's a friendship. It's not a romantic piece. Um, many ballets focus on romantic love. And I was interested in creating a ballet about friendship and support, all of those things that in the last two years we've really discovered how much we crave as human beings. Um, and I think it's those, those aspects that drew me to the story. And of course the end, you know, George's decision, that's the crux of the story, the narrative for me, what George feels he has to do um, to save Lenny is to kill him. And I can turn that round and round in my head for years. And I understand it, I sympathize with it. Some days I think it was the right thing, some days I think it was the wrong thing. And, and mostly I just wish that we are never as human beings put in that position to have to make that choice. Um, and I think it's a story that is as contemporary as it was 100 years ago, or just short of 100 years ago this timeless quality but then also as you kind of alluded to maybe we see it through a different lens because of all we've gone through the past two years is that something you've found as you were like working on this this past two years i think it's definitely given us more to chew on you know the, the experiences of the last two years i mean interestingly when we decided to go for this project the pandemic hadn't even begun yet. We had no idea what the next two years were going to look like. Um, but I think as we've lived through these, this time, certainly Ashley and I and Thomas Newman, who I've been working with throughout the whole pandemic on the score, have really come to realize, you know, we, we, we picked the thing of the time, you know, by luck, chance, maybe it was in the air. We have decided to tackle this story that feels very potent right now. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the renowned choreographer Kathy Marsden about her world premiere ballet of Mice and Men, which will be presented by the Joffrey Ballet here in Chicago. 
And so you kind of walked me through the origins and then how that relationship with the Joffrey started. And then how does it work when you're creating something completely new? Do you start working on the choreography or did you know that Thomas Newman was going to make the music? So it began with the idea and one of the first questions from Joffrey was who do you want to create the music? And Thomas Newman came up as an idea actually from a friend of mine and I thought, well, that's a fantastic idea, but he's never going to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I you know, threw the idea out in a meeting with Joffrey and they managed to organize a conference call with him and his manager. And he was tickled by the idea. I think, you know, it's a story that really intrigued him. He lives, he's from California. His studio looks out onto that landscape. You know, it's really part of him. And I think he'd never written a ballet before, and there was something about that that appealed to him. And so that was a fantastic starting point to know that I was going to have such an authentic American, contemporary, but also, you know, capturing the period sort of sound to work with, music to work with. But the first thing that I did was then go to my long-term collaborator, Edward Kemp, and we write the scenarios or adaptations usually together. And so we took the book, we had a couple of meetings with Thomas and then wrote what I'd describe as a dance script, you know, scene by scene, what was going to happen, how were we going to translate certain narrative corners of the story on the stage. And then with that scenario, it's got minutes attached to it, so it's very clearly timed out. I went to Thomas and began working on the music with him. And so when I come to Joffrey to the studio, I've got really the whole thing in my head except the movement. And then when I come to start work with the dancers, it's really beginning with that physical translation of the story. How can we capture each character in movement? And I have a very particular process for that, uh, which is quite unusual. It goes like this. <laughs> um, I, how do we just distill all of the research that I've done? So I've done a lot of reading and watching uh, on the story. I'll distill all of that into lists of words for each character. And with the dancers, the first week or two even of rehearsals, and in this case, we actually did it on Zoom in part, um, I spend time translating these individual words into movement. So without any particular scene in mind, but just to find a way of walking, a way of standing, some physical motifs for each character, a phrase that might express anger in their voice or that might express excitement or happiness. How would we, in this case of of Mice and Men, express the dream of George and Lenny through dance? Because that's such a leitmotif that reoccurs. We really needed to find a specific language in our bodies for that. And, And so all of that happens quite early on. And then when the dancers really have it in their bodies, they know how their character moves, we start putting the scenes together. And that can be then very collaborative because I will ask a dancer, I want you to come on from this side of the stage and you're going to encounter this person and have this intention or this has to happen emotionally. And they'll have suggestions for that. They'll maybe have that little skid step or that little jump thing or that roll on the floor. And I'll say, yeah, that's great, but could you do that under that person's leg? Or could you then wrap yourself around him? Or, you know, I'll start to sculpt it and shape it. But it's really very collaborative with the people in the room. When were you able to start that the physical uh, in-person type of choreography yeah well as i said we did this on zoom which is a first for all of us Uh, we had a rehearsal period planned in november 2020 
and we couldn't do it. And so we thought, well, we've got nothing to lose. Let's give it a go on Zoom and see what comes out. And so one dancer was allowed in the studio at, at a time and the others would uh, Zoom in and actually do a lot in their living rooms. I was pretty impressed by what everybody could do in their, mm -hmm. in their homes. Um, but we started to create movement phrases with me in Switzerland on Zoom, dancers here. And a lot of that actually turned out to be useful. I was amazed by some of the, the movement that we developed in that way has actually found its place within the final work, which is pretty impressive. But in reality, I then came over in autumn or in fall 2021, so last fall, and had about six weeks in the studio with the dancers. Uh, and in that time, we really created the piece properly. We made, we made the choreography. And now we're bringing it back together and going into the real, like, final details, trying to really screw in some of the tiny little gestures so that they really land. Thomas Newman's score adds another dimension to the work, providing an emotional backbone to the movements being made on stage. It captures the time, the 1930s, California, that dusty, flat, but slightly, slightly hilly landscape. But also, there's something very contemporary to it. It's written for orchestra, but with a pre-recorded layer as well. So it kind of brings together the cinematic world that Thomas Newman usually works within and live theater. Um, and I love this marriage that he's found. It feels like you're very immersed in the world of, of Lenny and George and the textures that he's captured, they're not usual orchestral textures. You know, the strings and the, the horns and the brass and the woodwinds are layered with the slap of a hand on a thigh or a little bubble of water. Um, and the way he's brought those two musical worlds together is astonishing. And here we are, uh, uh, days away from opening night after this process started so long ago. What are you feeling in this moment as we get closer? Is there some nervous energy, excitement? I think there's a nervous energy simply because I've learned right now nothing is predictable. Like anything can, can change. And so I'm really holding on to this dream that I've got, this piece that we've got. I love the team. I love the dancers. They're such a wonderful group of people and artists on stage. So I'm taking every day for everything it can give me. I don't want to take a moment for granted. Every little detail that we can add to the piece now will make it richer. Um, and yeah, step by step, day by day, we've got four or five rehearsal days to go. Yeah, it's just incredibly exciting to finally be here. Anytime you create something, but especially for like this new piece, do you have hopes for what the audience takes away? I really hope it moves people. I mean, the, the story is moving in itself. I hope that seeing it in this physical manifestation will find other perspectives from which to, you know, for, for the audience. I guess a lot of people will have read the story and some of them won't have. And I hope for any of those people, there's something in it that touches them. and perhaps that they leave the performance valuing their friendships, their connections, thinking in a more empathetic way about situations that they find themselves in 
in normal life because uh, I think that's what really the story is about. It's about empathy and, and human connection. In addition to the much-anticipated world premiere of, of Mice and Men, the Joffrey Ballet's spring program will also feature another work, the Joffrey premiere of Serenade. I think what I love about the program as the curator and director of the company is that George Balanchine's Serenade is the, is the first half of the program. Both Serenade by George Balanchine and Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men were created during the Great Depression. Joffrey Artistic Director Ashley Weeder. So Serenade was created in 34, premiered in 35, and Mice and Men was 37. And I think that what you have from both George Balanchine and from John Steinbeck are reactions to that time. And Balanchine tried to give us a beautiful world. It was his first ballet that he ever created in America. It is sublimely beautiful. It is empathetic. It has a, a story, even though it's an abstract work. And Mice and Men is a, definitely a narrative. But they both deal with empathy and humanity. And so I think the program is deeply felt, deeply emotional, and it shows the company in its entirety. Serenade is all women, Mice and Men is all men. So it sounds like uh, some of those themes that are coming through in both those uh, really relevant to what we as a society are going through now, but it, I don't know how far back these were planned because there was a lot of shuffling because of the pandemic, but did that just work out and we're just seeing it through this new lens or was that a thoughtful decision? I think that I was always clear that I wanted to put Serenade with my son Men. Knowing the story of my son Men and knowing Serenade, I have, I have been associated with Serenade from when I graduated at the Royal Ballet School when I was in my teens. And I've always felt that Serenade can take an audience on, on the most beautiful journey. And there's a mystery to Serenade. Like there is a mystery to Of My Some Men. And I think that I was very clear about putting the two together. I think that then the pandemic happened and the world has been through a huge amount and the world is going through many things today, politically, across the world. I think that, you know, the plight of human beings is, is really troubling. And I think that if we can just take a moment to be really thoughtful and reflect on how beautiful our humanity is, and we have to learn to treat people in a much deeper, more respectful way. The Joffrey Ballet's spring program, which includes the world premiere production of Of Mice and Men, opens Wednesday, April 27th and continues through May 8th. All performances will take place at the Lyric Opera House. You can find more information at joffrey.org. Thanks for tuning in this Sunday morning. If you ever want to get a hold of me with a comment or question, you can email me at gzydic at wdcb.org or find me on the socials on Instagram and Twitter. Look for the handle at onairgary. On a throne, in a palace that I happen to own, bring me some pheasant, keep it on the... And you are listening to the art section. 
My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. The pop music history mashup 6 made its North American premiere at Chicago Shakespeare Theater way back on what feels like a, another lifetime ago in May of 2019. Created by Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss while they were studying at Cambridge University, the musical gives voices to the six wives of Henry VIII. Now Six is back in Chicago for a multiple-month run at the CIBC Theater. If I remember correctly, both the dueling critics really liked that production from three years ago. Carrie, is that still the case, at least for you? I think it's it's held up pretty well. It had to delay its Broadway opening because of, you know, the thing that we've been talking about. But it did open, I believe, on Broadway this last fall. Now, Abby Mueller, longtime Chicago, you know, from the from the famous Mueller family, was in the Chicago Shakespeare production. I believe she is still in the Broadway production. So this is a new cast for us. But, you know, I think it holds up pretty well. I think this is a great example of a show that knows exactly what it's trying to do, does it well, does not overstay its welcome. And I think, you know, if you have particularly, you know, teenage daughters or teenage boys, I don't want to be gendered about this, who are looking for, you know, a little bit of history and a whole lot of pop empowerment, that this is a, a very fine and fun outing. Indeed, and I will say that the six women, who because the entire cast are the six wives, of Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anna of Cleves, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr, or to use the old mnemonic device that all school children learn, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And uh, this is an 80-minute show. As you say, it does not overstay its welcome. And each of the six queens delivers a big, Mm-hmm. powerhouse number that presumes to explain her story behind the story, and they compete for, in turn, for the audience's favor. And they're backed by an onstage four-piece female rock band. Now, the six women in the ensemble, ensemble, they utterly dazzled me. These are six incredibly talented performers. Like, you know, where have they been all my life? Maybe <laughs> if I was closer to... To rock and pop music, I would have known who they were. <laughs> and, and, and the backup band, who call themselves the Ladies in Waiting, they are dynamite as well. And I don't say this lightly because rock musicals are not my favorite cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to add that Six isn't really a full-fledged musical. You know, if you're looking for a show with a plot and characters to mm-hmm. capture your emotions, like The King and I out at Drury Lane, Oakbrook. Well, you know, six isn't it. In, 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 in classical, uh, formal music terms, it's a cantata, a sequence of songs by a composer based on a theme. Right. And in this case, it's mm-hmm. a rock cantata inspired by the Six Wives. Right. But what's interesting is that it kind of starts off as almost like an American Idol or some kind of reality competition. You know, who had it worse? And by the end of it, they're realizing, you know, it's, it's, part of what makes us famous isn't, we're not famous because of Henry. He's famous because of us. What do we know about Henry VIII? I mean, Jonathan, maybe you would, maybe you can remember something about him. I remember I the women, right? I remember his wives. You remember his daughter, particularly Elizabeth I, who was Anne Boleyn's child. Um, you know, he, he, he had a male heir who didn't live very long. That was the source of great distress and uh you know in at least one case um 
you know, beheading. And yet the women are what we think of when we think of Henry VIII. We think the six wives. So I think that's kind of one of the nice little, uh, you know, tidy bow things that happens in this production. Right. It's also, you know, just as Hamilton reinvented the founding fathers and made them multicultural, mm-hmm. this show, Six, uh, reinvents the Six Wives and makes them multicultural. Absolutely. The multicultural cast, it's an extremely contemporary take on women's empowerment. And mm-hmm. it's certainly, as you already said, Carrie, it's a wonderful entree into the lives of these women and their ne'er-do-well hubby. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, everywhere. Just like what you said, everyone's heard of Henry and his wives, but how much do we really know about them? You right. know, and perhaps six will lead its audiences, which are overwhelmingly female. Perhaps six will lead its audiences to read a more traditional examination uh, of of their lives, such as. Um, uh, Lady Antonia Fraser, the great yes. British mm-hmm. uh, historian and widow of the of the of the uh, Nobel Prize playwright Harold Pinter, Lady Antonia Fraser wrote a wonderful book about ten years ago called and, "The Wives of Henry VIII." And, 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 I hope and you know what? People I, will go and read that. I have a couple books on Henry VIII, so I'm perhaps a little obsessed. But yes, Antonia Fraser's <laughs> book is just terrific. <laughs> Allison Weir. There's been, you know, I'm old enough to remember the original uh, Six Wives of Henry VIII PBS miniseries. And, uh, you know, I was just talking about this with my sister the other day. She said it was a little creepy because when you think about what happened to Anne Boleyn and uh, Catherine Howard, who were the beheaded in that mnemonic device, it's a very brutal and sad thing to think about. And I think the show touches on that, not in a way that is, you know, counter to the kind of more exuberant spirit of the music, but really does let us see that these were women, even if they were of minor nobility, as Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard were, they didn't really have a lot of power compared to, you know, the king, you know. Um, There's a song that Catherine Howard sings, All You Want to Do, and it's, it's sad because she's this pretty girl who has been beset by the attentions of older men most of her life. And in her world, what do you do with that? You know, it's not as if she can just say, you know, I'm going to go off and become, I don't know, an archaeologist or a marine biologist and have a career. <laughs> that's not something that's available to her. Again, it does it, it does it well, but it doesn't hammer, I'm going to say hammer you over the head, but that's kind of a bad analogy to use, I think, <laughs> if we're talking about a couple of these wives. Uh, you know, uh, Gary, you mentioned that Six is co-authored by Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss, who met while they were together at Cambridge University, and they write really smart, dynamic lyrics, and also extremely powerful music. And it's worth saying that there are musical inspirations for each of the big songs of the Queens, and those musical inspirations, according to the program, include Beyonce and Shakira mm-hmm. and Ariane Grande and Nicki Minaj and Rihanna and Alicia Keys and a lot right. more. Now, I'm not well-versed enough about today's pop music to recognize each one, so right. I will leave it well, to well, younger members of the audience <laughs> to do that. Right? Well, I will say the Beyonce, the Beyonce joke that got me laughing the most is Fran of Cleves, and I, I am Team Cleves. I'm happy to discuss this and take questions on that from anybody <laughs> at any time. She has a line in her song, Get Down, where she says, all right, ladies, let's get in Reformation. Because, of course, the other thing we know about Henry VIII is that he established the Church of England. But even that only happened because he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon and the Pope wouldn't let him. So even that major accomplishment really ties back in with the women in his lives. Um, 
I, I actually would say that Get Down is my favorite song in this, uh, because, you know, Anne of Cleves is an interesting case. She was only married to him for six, six months. He decided to marry her. You know, she was a minor German noblewoman, a princess, but not a, princess. you know, no. yes, but not, you know, it wasn't as if she was, she was no Catherine of Aragon, who was the princess of Spain. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> right. She was he not the fell in love with her, allegedly Spain, based on this yeah. Hans Holbein portrait. She gets there, and he realizes, you're, you just don't really look like, you know, your picture. Now, apparently Henry did not have any means of looking at his own image at that time, or maybe he was a vampire and just didn't see himself in mirrors at all. <laughs> Nonetheless, he kind of worked out this deal with Anna Cleves, like, let's just get this marriage annulled. Let's make up some reason that we can't get, you know, we can't stay married. But you know, he, he obviously wasn't going to take the risk of executing a foreign-born princess. That was just something for the domestic wives, I guess. So he gives her her yes. palace, and she gets to live in this palace, hunt and play croquet and have a good time and not have to be married to Henry. So and it's kind of him also. <laughs> yes, and she's just and even when they're trying to talk about how bad their lives are with Henry, Anna please can barely keep a straight face. She, yeah, at one point she's trying to make up something like, "Oh, you know, I died of plague," and they say, "Really?" She says, "No, my life's been amazing." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I look at her as like. Yeah, she became his unofficially his like his sister and was right. treated as such, mm-hmm. and she had that standing, the king's sister, in in court where she right. continued to make appearances. Yes. Yeah, and the song yeah. is all about you know I've got it good, you know get you know get right. down you dirty rascal, I'm the queen of the castle, you know. <laughs> so it's, right. uh, yeah, now, you know I think every performer is a standout, and they it's really to are. Choose, it's just to choose a favorite, but since you named your favorite. Okay. My favorite was Heart of Stone. Oh, gosh, a that's huge, a good song. Huge, huge power ballad. Most of the numbers in the show are very up-tempo. This is a ballad, so it's a little bit slower. But it's a huge power ballad delivered by Jasmine For- Forsberg. Jasmine Forsberg playing Queen Jane Seymour, the queen who died in childbirth after giving uh, Henry his, his only uh, legitimate son. And air, yeah, Jane right. Seymour, and I found and I, that. And, really I, and wonderful. I should have mentioned it was Olivia Donaldson who plays Anna McLeaves, but the entire cast is really just very powerful. And in fact, uh, the the Jane Seymour part that you uh, referenced, Jonathan, I think that was Abby Mueller's part in the original North American production at Chicago Shakes. So, and that too, you know, I, when we think of Jane Seymour, I think the popular image of her is like the sweet, demure woman who gave Henry what she wanted and then died. And so the one he really loved because she gave him a son. In this song, she's going a little bit deeper about, you know, I, there's more to me than what you've been told. And that, that really is the running theme throughout the show. And no. but, but again, yeah. it doesn't feel like they belabor it. I think there's enough differences in the style of music. But uh, the costumes by Gabriella Slade are just, you know, just sort of wonderful, sort of deconstructed yeah. punk tutor, you know, right. <laughs> glam rock. Punk. You know, uh, I, I don't know. Between yeah. this and Moulin Rouge, the stockings budgets it's, uh, for these Broadway and Chicago shows are just off, you know, just off the charts. <laughs> the, costumes, the costumes all look like they had a lot of stuff on them that would slash, slash you to bits if you got too close. <laughs> you know, six, Gary, you mentioned the six-sided North American premiere at Chicago Shakespeare Theater in 2019. And as a result, Chicago Shakespeare is a co-presenter, a co-producer of this show on Broadway and this national tour. They have a financial stake in it. And this is wonderful 
because the show is uh, successful and the income from it will generously help assure Chicago Shakespeare's financial future. That's rare to happen to a Chicago theater. It happens every now and then, but not right. very. Very good point. Often. Very good point. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. chorus line keeping you know the public going for so the, many the, years, uh, the, right? The public theater in New York, right? Right. Uh, you know, although the cast is different, the show, as you, as, as uh, Carrie, you have said, the show itself is essentially the same as it was at Chicago Shakespeare, but the set is a, is bigger, and there are more dazzling light effects, and also a lot of smoke befitting a rock concert, which right. kind of kind of is. Um, and that's certainly how the audience treated it when I saw it, uh, which was just last Tuesday night. I wasn't there on, a, on an official press night, so I was there with, with just plain folks. Right, same, a, same, a, same yeah. for me. It drew a big crowd, but I, I want to note that the house was not absolutely full, so there are seats available for right. people who want to see this show, and obviously you and I both like it. Um, yeah. I also want to say that for reasons unknown, the night I saw the show, the CIP Theater was really cold, at, oh. least, on the main, at least on the main floor where I was sitting. You know, it it was the authentic yeah. Tower of London heating, I think, <laughs> that they were using well, that night. I think so, because <laughs> m- many of the patrons, myself included, just kept our coats on for the whole 80 minutes. Right. <laughs> it may be that we're in that weird seasonal time where they, we don't know if it's cold, we don't know if it's warm. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that it's, I, I was there and with a couple sitting next to me, they actually, their daughters were sitting elsewhere, but they had like daughters, I think they said from like 20 to 12 and they had gotten tickets for them. And, you know, afterwards, you know, right. they're catching up with them in the lobby. I could see them just gushing about it. So take that for what it's worth. But I think that's a pretty good endorsement of this, as you said, Jonathan, particularly for, uh, you know, for teenage daughters, but also I think, um, and, and, you know, I, I don't think you need to be young. I think that uh, if you have any kind of interest in Tudor history, this is a nice, a nice riff on it. It will give you just enough for you to kind of get your own little knowing wink and a nod in yes. on some of the references. Yes. Yes. You know, I know this is neither here nor there, but uh, I'm going to be away in a few weeks in May. I'm going to be in London, and one of the things already on the schedule, even before I saw this show, is a visit to Hever Castle, uh, about 40 miles outside of London, which is the castle in Uh which Anne Boleyn grew up. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No. And one thing they didn't mention in the show is that uh, Anne Boleyn and, and uh, Catherine Howard were cousins and uh, first cousins. So um, that would be an awkward afterlife reunion, I think. You know, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to you? Well, Henry cut my head off. Oh, same. <laughs> yeah. Well, the ha- the Howard family uh, was then and continue to be today the Dukes of Norfolk, mm-hmm. one of the most powerful of all the dukedoms in. Uh, traditional dukedoms in in England. Uh the Boleyns were up and comers. They were uh, they they married into the more power, powerful right. Howard family. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's really what you get to these women are kind of pawns in some ways. You know, they have yes. Again, what what choices do they have? Their their career is to be married and produce sons. That's it. And um it's uh, yeah, but we get to the you know, Catherine Parr, who is played by a local, uh, a, a Chicago native, I should say, Gabriela Carrillo. You know, points out that she wrote. You know, she's one of the first women in England to publish under her own name. She advocated education for women. Um, so they all had. You know, Catherine Varagon was quite well educated for, for women of the time and was very well versed in church his, You know, church 
you know, yeah. Roman Catholic theology, much to Henry's dismay, because she could just counter anything he threw at her about the legitimacy of their marriage. So, and she um, did, yeah, and she, she did. did. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. Well, what else could they have done? Well, Shakespeare hadn't been born yet, so I guess they could not have been theater critics. Otherwise, no. <laughs> it would have been an <laughs> I, easy decision. Right? Yeah, is there anything else to be but a theater critic, Jonathan? Yeah. <laughs> Because it's so lucrative, first of all. (laughs) Oh, well. We each have our own castle. I don't know if people (laughs) listening to the program are aware of that. So this uh, this is a three-month run here in Chicago. This seems to be popular. What's something comparable as far as uh, a production that's had like a long run, but not like an extended run? about that and this is kind of an unusual length because usually there's the big sit-downs like Hamilton or Wicked have had in the past or the you know maybe two or three weeks you know or even shorter you know sometimes things just come in for a week um what what, I'm gonna throw that to you Jonathan because I'm trying to think of an equivalent well you know Moulin Rouge the musical has just officially opened right but it began performances uh in, in in late March so it has about a two-month run, all things considered. Right. Uh, it's the start of the national tour, so they did a month of previews before they officially opened, and right. then they do another month. And we don't know, you know, six could be extended. It probably depends. So we don't know, right. you know how whether it really has to move and go on to the next stop or whether there's some open space for Right. For and, an and I think that that makes it, you know, particularly if you're looking to get tickets for after school is out, um, it's running into July. You know, those longer runs, I think it might be a little bit easier to kind of look around and get some bargains. Sometimes when it's just a short run and it's a popular show, I know it can be a little bit tighter. I believe they are doing like $20 or $25 uh, lottery for this as well. So that's something else that our listeners can check in too. Okay. This production of Six continues at the CIBC Theater through July 3rd. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. Always good to talk with both of you. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. Legendary performer Barbara Streisand is turning 80 today. Streisand was born on April 24, 1942 in Brooklyn. A few months after her first birthday, her father died at the age of 34 from complications from an epileptic seizure. Streisand would graduate high school at the age of 16 and immediately embarked on a career in show business that took her from small nightclubs in New York City to some of the biggest stages in the country and the film industry. Over the course of a tremendous six-decade career, Streisand has been awarded two Oscars, eight Grammys, four Emmys, one honorary Tony, eight Golden Globes, three Peabody's, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. At age 21, Streisand signed a contract with Columbia Records that gave her full creative control in exchange for less money. Her first album, titled simply The Barbara Streisand Album, reached the top 10 on the Billboard charts and won three Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year. She's gone on to record 49 other studio albums. Cloudy great times. 
Streisand's first film was a reprise of her Broadway hit Funny Girl. The movie was uh, also a success, and she won the 1968 Academy Award for Best Actress. FYI, a stage revival of Funny Girl opens tonight on Broadway. Her last film role was in the 2012 comedy The Guilt Trip, which co-starred Seth Rogen. No word on if she plans to take on any more film projects, either in front or behind the camera. According to a recent statement, Ms. Streisand plans to celebrate her 80th B-Day with family and close friends at an afternoon tea at her house. Happy birthday to a true icon. Don't tell me not to fly, I simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on my It's like butter. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Saturday, April 30th is Independent Bookstore Day. Over 800 bookshops across the country will celebrate the occasion with special deals, merchandise, and programming. The promotional holiday started in 2013 and has continued on the last Saturday of April ever since, though the past two years have been quite different. This year's Independent Bookstore Day takes place at a time when there's cautious optimism regarding the future of in-person events. Since browsing bookstores is among my favorite pastimes, I enjoy shining a light on various bookshops in the Chicago metro area here on the show. In honor of this year's Independent Bookstore Day, I headed west to an incredibly charming family-owned bookstore in downtown Geneva. Like most great bookshops, there's a welcoming vibe when you walk through the doors of Harvey's Tales. The store opened in the fall of 2018, but the two-story house that the shop is in has been around since the 1860s. Once we got inside and looked around, we started to get very excited. We thought, oh, we can put, you know, the coffee bar here and the, the checkout area will be here. And we were able to see the vision of what it could be. So once we got inside, we were very excited about the place. This is Roxanne Osborne. She and her husband Chuck Osborne own Harvey's Tales. I recently caught up with the longtime Geneva residents at their store to learn more about what it's like running an independent bookstore in 2022. I think I read on the store's website that you're both retired from your first careers. Was opening a bookstore something you both always wanted, something you thought you would do once you were retired? I think what we were concerned about was what were we going to do in retirement. So we always liked books in bookstores, so it seemed like a natural fit for us to create our own bookstore. 30-plus year Geneva residence was the hope that you could open one in town? Yeah, not only the hope, but basically our, our it was one of our top requirements was that we told each other we wouldn't open uh, a bookstore unless it could be in downtown Geneva where all the great, you know, small business shopping is, and also if we could own the building. We didn't want to be tenant, so we wanted to make sure we could own the building that we were going to house Harvey's Tales. And for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with downtown Geneva, it's it's lovely, uh, lots of shops, but uh, 
I would imagine finding space down here can be challenging. Very challenging, if not impossible. So we uh, we looked for quite a while, and we we did have one one building right on Third Street, but unfortunately that deal fell through. And this building that we're in today was also on the market, so it wasn't exactly on Third Street. We're just around the corner from Third uh, Street. But we found the building and it actually worked out better than the first building we thought we were going to purchase. So we purchased this building and went about getting it uh, renovated and set up as Harvey's Tales. What was this building? So the historic district in Geneva, a lot of the buildings down here are old. So they, they present all kinds of different challenges in terms of build outs and renovation and stuff. This building was built in like 1863, used to be on Third Street. Um, it was a, a private residence for a long time. A doctor had his practice here for like 50 years, it raised his family here. And then in about 1970, it turned into sort of commercial. There was a restaurant or two in here. The uh, Kane County Bar Association had their offices here. Um, it was a sewing store. It was the Kris Kringle shop, okay. a Christmas store in Geneva for a long time, 20, 20 plus years probably. And then about 12 years ago, they picked the building up off of Third Street and moved it over to James around the corner to free up the lot next door for a project that never actually happened. So, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's an interesting building. A lot of history here. You officially opened October 1st, 2018. That's correct, October 1st. I have like a, a list of like dream jobs, so I'm, I'm able to do one of mine. I, this is what I always wanted to do, but like owning a record store or uh, being like a film festival programmer or owning an independent bookstore would also be on that list. So I'm curious what the reality of running an independent bookstore is like compared to what you thought it would be. I mean, we we had no expectations, I guess, because we didn't know. I was in I was in education for 30 some years, and Roxanne worked in real estate in New York mostly for the last 20 years um, and commuted so she had a lot of business experience and I just uh, I take direction well so <laughs> it, uh, I don't think we had any expect we didn't know we 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 thought that you know the community would support something like this and they have it's a uh, it's, it's been good there was a bookstore down here Robin's books yeah okay. Robin's I don't remember the owner's names, but uh, Robin's Books closed, I think, in, I want to say in 2002 or three. But yeah, they just, the family was ready to retire and nobody, their children didn't want to take it over. And so they just kind of closed down. And, uh, and we always brought our kids down to Robin's Bookstore. So we've always been a big bookstore family. So wherever we would go, we'd try to find the independent bookstore, mm -hmm. not the big chain. So we would do that on vacations, but certainly when Robin's was here, we were frequent customers. And then I'm like at that age where, so when I was growing up, it seemed like most towns had a little independent bookstore, at least out here in the suburbs. And then by the time I got to college, I think is when Amazon started to come along. And then as I become an adult, you, you know, they've seen independent uh, retailers close. And so that's kind of, I've done some of these uh, independent bookstore stories over the years. And I think the perception outside of this world is that it's uh, that Amazon is killing independent bookstores, and that's a reality. But then there's also there's also room for for both. I think I think there is, but Amazon is definitely a factor. Oddly enough, when the pandemic hit, and then there was a more fo the people were more focused on supporting local, mm -hmm. whatever it was, we saw that that we benefited from that. So we had a lot of people 
tell us outright that I used to buy from Amazon, but I'm going to buy from you guys because we want you to be around. So that was a, that was a positive force. But I, I do say that Amazon is definitely a factor in whether or not we will be successful and we will still be able to be here for years to come. I don't see Amazon as a competitor to us because we can't compete with Amazon's pricing. Their books are their loss leader. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they sell most of their books under cost, even their cost. Um, so we don't we don't even try and compete with that, but I think we offer a lot of things that they don't offer to the community. You know, we we give a lot back that they don't. I mean, I don't know how many scholarships they gave to the high school this year, but I think it's zero. Um, I, or I don't local know. community, you know, events. Yeah. We support local community events by giving gift cards and things of that nature. But yeah, I think Amazon. From our standpoint, you'll still have people come in the store and say, oh, well, I'm not going to pay that. I can buy it for X on Amazon. And that's true. You can. But as Chuck said, they can buy their books cheaper than we buy our books. Mm -hmm. And we don't mark up books. They are what they are. They're, the price on the book is the price that we sell them for. So when Amazon is buying them for less than we have to pay for them, they can certainly sell them for far less than the price uh, put on the book cover. And I think we sort of gear maybe uh, what we sell a little bit differently than like a like a big like a Barnes and Noble maybe um, you know where they, they try and sell everything that they can we, we try we don't sell too many I don't know I call them Costco titles that's probably not fair but the, the books that they sell for 50% off you know and in, in large amounts a lot of the real big popular yeah. authors the New York Times list we don't that isn't kind of our thing I guess we uh, we do a lot of smaller press stuff I mean we sell the bestseller stuff too but we place orders for people all the time I mean just hundreds of books a month, special orders, because they can't find them someplace else. And either they're not online or they don't want to buy them online or they, the, the big box stores won't special order certain things. And so, I, I mean, I guess there is competition, but in some ways, in some ways, there's not, too. And it's almost like, for me, and I know a lot of my listeners, if you enjoy your local bookstore and if that's something that that you value, then I guess you make that commitment to shop there, even if it means paying a little bit more. It's a conscious choice, you know, and, and it, what we offer is great customer service. And we've got a lot of our booksellers are, are very knowledgeable about books. So we love to talk to the customers when they come in. We greet them when they come in. We make them feel welcome. We ask what they're reading. We offer suggestions. And as Chuck said, we offer, you know, we do special orders and we do just some fun things throughout the year. We support our community wherever and however we can. So there's, you know, there's a lot of benefits to a small locally owned business. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the co-owners of Harvey's Tales, an independent bookstore in Geneva. In my opinion, one of the most interesting parts of running a bookstore would be the curation process of what you carry. Chuck says there are a number of factors you have to consider. We read a lot of lists. We listen to our customers. We, we do a lot of homework. We do a lot of time outside of the store after hours. But yeah, we, we, we do look at, at what we sell, and uh, it's, uh, it's been a learning experience, I guess. There's, there are certain things that we don't sell that don't sell, didn't sell well, like with the community, with, ours, with our customer base, so we don't sell certain things too well. I mean, current event stuff. Current okay. event stuff is really hot for a week, and then nobody wants to see it. So unless it's a, a special order, we don't buy too much of that stuff. We sell a lot of classics. We have a banned book room for fun upstairs. It's like all the books that are banned and challenged through the years. Oh, okay. And people people love that. We sell a ton of stuff out of the banned book room. And it's everything from like Charlotte's Web to 
you know, current titles that are being challenged at certain school districts in certain right. states. And I sold mouse for five years, but all of a sudden, you know, when Tennessee banned mouse, everybody wanted to read yeah. mouse like it was something brand new. And it's been around since like 1980. I mean, it's, it's not a new title. I know Band Book Week, I think, takes place in September, but it feels like this past year or two, all of a sudden, I've seen in the news like a resurgence. Every and week is Band Book Week. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's very true. And then as far as your customer base, obviously, the people here in Geneva, I would imagine, support it. But the way the Geneva downtown is, I know it draws a lot of people from all over just to shop in this area. So do you see people from I outside? They, they did a study one time that the economic development people did and 70 to 80 percent of the downtown shopping traffic is not from Geneva. Mm. They might be local Fox Valley but we get a lot of visitors to Geneva. There's a lot of we're, we're kind of a tourist destination mm-hmm. I guess you know a day trip kind of place yeah. and uh, we have a lot of customers that come from you know we're on the train line so people come out from the city even and you know discover us for the first time and they keep coming back mm-hmm. and we'll see them you know once a month they'll stop in at the store and it's, uh, it's been kind of nice. Yeah, weekends are primarily out-of-towners, visitors. So most everybody that comes in the door on weekends will ask, oh, have you been with us before? And they're saying, no, it's our first time. So even after we're almost four years old, after almost four years, we still get brand new customers every weekend. Oh, we still get local people saying, I didn't know you guys were here. We do. We do get that, too. They'll <laughs> say, how long have you been here? And we'll tell them. They're like, really? And they haven't. They had no idea we were here. And they're from Geneva or St. Charles or Batavia, you know, the, the neighboring yeah. communities. Two years ago, everything changes with the start of the pandemic. And it's hard to even think about what April of 2020 was like. But I can imagine it must have been challenging. What have the, the past two years been like here at the store? Well, when it first happened, we had to quickly pivot to being a store that did anything but be open for business. So we weren't, we didn't have the ability to purchase through a website that was like in year five of our five-year plan. So we had no website ordering available to us. We quickly went out and got shipping supplies. We put the word out via our Instagram and Facebook, and we had a sign created for the front of the building that said, we'll do curbside delivery, we'll do home delivery. So we did uh, free delivery to people who lived in St. Charles, Geneva, and Batavia. And we shipped books and we had basically our store upstairs basically turned into a shipping warehouse. We had tables set up and postage set up and it was it was incredible and it actually kept us afloat. But it was a very, very tough time and I'll add into that. It was a tough time. Yeah. <laughs> it was very fluid. I mean, because you didn't know next week what the changes were going to be and requirements and restrictions and... Yeah, it was, it was an interesting time to, to live through. Well, we were 17 months old when it hit. Right. So we were still a fairly new business where people didn't even know we were here. And it was very stressful from the standpoint of we wondered if we'd survive. Because when you're, you know, it takes a while for a small business to get established. And just being 17 months old and having to shut your doors and then having to try to get word out to people who didn't even know you were here in the first place was difficult. So our community was great. Our customers were great. They told their friends, you know, call Harvey's Tales, buy a book from them. So the community really rallied and, and you know, purchased from us. And that got us through those months when we had to, to close our doors. And then when, of course, all the restrictions came about how many people could be in the store and the mask requirements, and we had to monitor and manage through all of that. And, and we're just really happy to say we've made it thus far. We're here today. 
The community was great and supportive, and we, we're just very, very grateful that we are still open for business. Right, because in those early weeks, I think a lot of us thought like, okay, this will be over by the, the summer. And then, uh, yeah, you kind of alluded to it. Last summer, things reopened and it felt like, okay, we're, and then quickly in the fall, like a new batch of mask mandates. Uh, so has it been tough, like navigating those things? It has been. And I, I will say when the second mask mandate came into play, it was harder on our team. The first time it was put in place, we didn't get very much pushback. I bet you could count on two hands the number of people who came in and kind of, you know, made a scene about having to wear a mask. But the second mask mandate that went into effect after we'd all had the ability to take it off for a couple of months created a lot more issues for us in the store. There were more people who were emboldened to say what they felt, you know, should be said. And it was really unfortunate because they didn't, our team, nor we, deserved to be treated the way that some of the people came in and, and uh, treated us. So that was a little bit harder. But I will say overall, we didn't have any real, real problems. I feel like booksellers, the people working in bookstores, have uh, some great insight into recommendations for what to read next. Uh, what are some of your favorite books from 2022 so far? I read a lot. I listen to a lot. Audiobooks. I just finished, so Jonathan Franzen wrote a book called Crossroads not too long ago. It's one of the better things I've read in a long time. It's not usually my thing, um, his style, but it was, it was a good read. We have a book club mm-hmm. book that we, we both kind of committed to this month. We have a book club that meets once a month, and, uh, okay. and, I, and this, is your, this, is your first year, this is the first time they're going to do a little foray into science fiction because most of them are just adult fiction kind of people. But... Uh, we're, we're reading How High We Go in the Dark, which is kind of sci-fi, climate, science fiction. Um, so that'll be interesting how that goes. Coming up on Saturday, April 30th, is Independent Bookstore Day, and that's a day when independent bookstores uh, all over the country will do special things, uh, kind of like Independent Record Store Day, which uh, took place um, on the 23rd. Big plans for Independent Bookstore Day here? Yeah, we have some plans. We like to do some fun th- fun things. We always have some kind of a drawing or something, so of course we're going to have that. But we also like to help support other local uh, independent authors or artisans. So one of the things that we're doing is we have a great relationship with uh, Sherry Dusky, Dusky Rinker, who is the author of all of the Good Night, Good Night Construction site books so she's a great friend to the store so she's going to come she's got a new book coming out this week so she's going to come and read at 10 30 on our patio and she'll stick around and sign books for people and then we also have the uh, wild west baked goods he's out of elburn and he's going to come and he makes artisan breads and rolls and things of that nature so he's going to set up outside and then we also have a group of about three local authors who are right two of them write children's books and one is an adult book author they're going to be on our patio from noon to four talking about their books and having you know people and they'll sign them for people if they choose to so we've got that and we are lucky enough to have a shakespeare scholar as one of our uh, employees she's going to do uh, three shakespeare readings that afternoon so just some fun little things to you know get people into the store and and introduce them to us if they don't already know us 
The Osbournes can't predict the future, but they're already excited about the prospect of celebrating the store's five-year anniversary in October of 2023. We'll be five years old next October. So we are already planning to have a big celebration because we'll be so grateful we made it to five years. So we're going to have a big birthday party at five years. So definitely come see us and we'll we'll let you know how we're feeling and what we're, what we're uh, excited about. But it is, we, we are seeing business come back, but now of course we have to contend with higher gas prices and higher food mm-hmm. prices and higher everything. So, you know, disposable income people may have had during the pandemic has lessened a little bit. And if you're wondering about the store's name, Harvey's Tales, it's a nod to their late family dog, Harvey. Harvey was our first Bernese mountain dog. Yeah, he was a good dog. Yeah. So we decided to memorialize him, I guess. and He was just really a good dog. That was Chuck and Roxanne Osborne. They're the owners of Harvey's Tales, an independent bookstore in downtown Geneva. It's located at 216 James Street. You can find more information about the store at harveystales.com. And you can learn more about Independent Bookstore Day at indiebound.org. A reading rainbow, I can be anything. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture on the program's website, theartssection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again Next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.